I scroll through my Google News app at least once a day, and this is what I see. Recipes, because I love to cook, a recap of last night's football game, go Bills. I see advertisements and a bunch of articles from the same free news sources that I visited last week. Is this really a news feed, or is it just personalized entertainment? Today, I'm posing that question and more to Arjun Murthy. Arjun is the co-founder and CEO of The Factual, an AI-powered news platform that provides readers with the most credible perspectives on the day's trending stories. Arjun shares how the platform works, the role of sensationalism in news, and his thoughts on paywalls. Keep listening. Arjun, thanks so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. So uh, I want to talk to you about the idea of news as entertainment. A lot of people believe that the internet and social media especially have given rise to this sensationalism in the news. But when we first spoke, um, you pointed out that news has been sensational and about entertainment long before the internet was ever a thing. So can you talk more about that and tell me what has changed because of social media? Sure. Um, so yeah, news has always been partisan um, for for most of its uh, existence. It's really a relatively recent thing that we expect news to be perfectly neutral and objective. For the most part, news outlets align themselves to different political parties or views, uh, depending on the owner of the paper or, or what have you. Um, a few things have happened in the last 100 years. The first is that uh, putting aside maybe the last five years, the share of revenue that is made up from subscription continued to decline and was trounced by the amount of revenue that was created from advertising. So advertising revenue just steadily grew and grew as more consumer products were out there, more things were there to advertise, and newspapers realized, hey, the more pages we print, the more ads we can run. This is great. Let's print more pages. Um, You want to print more pages, you run a lot more stories. A lot of those stories are not really urgent, but you need to fill up pages. So you get more and more sort of soft news, celebrity news, gossip, things like that. Um, so that continued. And then when social media came along, something dramatic happened, which is all of us on social media realized that, hey, if we want engagement, if we want people to like and tweet and heart us and all these other things, then oftentimes the more incendiary extreme our content is, the more provocative or catchy it is, the more likely we'll get engagement. So we started to share that a lot. And so the news outlets realized, hey, wait a minute, the stories that are getting the most traffic are those soft stories, not the hard stories. And it's all being driven by the social media. We ought to put out more of that. So it became this sort of cycle where people were sharing it a lot more. That was driving more traffic, more traffic, more page views, more page views, more ads. It all worked beautifully together. And it drives demand for that kind of content more than sort of the dull, hard stories that are very matter of factly. People are like, yeah, I'm just not that interested in it. Right. So um, those sensational headlines may have already existed, but social media made them more shareable, I guess, or, or brought them to more people. Yeah. For maybe, you know, whoever was the main readership of the news outlet would find out about these stories and talk about it, et cetera, it's fine. And now people who had never even heard about an outlet would start seeing this show up in their news feed or someone had you know, shared it and they're like, oh my God, that's crazy. And then they click on it. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I, I think that's a good um, and important thing to remember that social media didn't create the news as entertainment. It just made it more popular, maybe, or brought it to the forefront. Yeah. In general, I think that's true about technology. It, it tends not to create brand new stuff. It'll take whatever's already being there and multiply it a thousandfold. So at the factual, you uh, are trying to combat this a little bit. So you're trying to present an unbiased news feed for people um, or provide them with an unbiased view of, of the news. And you use artificial intelligence to do that. I'm hoping that you can explain uh, how that artificial intelligence helps and also how does that help people actually think critically about the news too? Because that's often the point that people come back to with this, um, that you need, it's your responsibility to think critically about what you're reading. So how does the factual help with that? Sure. Um, so in, in our early days, we were trying to find out, first of all, what was the problem we were trying to solve? And after talking to lots of uh, news readers and even thinking about our own problems, we zeroed in on bias as being the biggest thing people were frustrated with. It wasn't so much that the news was outright false. It was that the news was overly biased, overly opinionated, not particularly informative. So we asked people, said, well, what do you want in a news story? What do you like to see? And over and over, we heard the same four things. Uh, People wanted stories to be really well-researched, lots of sources, evidence, citations, quotations, etc. They wanted the stories should not be very opinionated. They're really tired of opinionated journalism masking as news. Um, they wanted it to be written by a topical expert, not someone in Macedonia, you know, writing random stories just for clicks. So someone who really understood the topic, maybe a beat reporter of some kind, and to be on a reputable site, someplace that is known for good journalism. So we took those four elements and we turned it into software. And what we built is a ratings algorithm that's transparent and consistent and rates every article on those four dimensions. How well researched and well sourced is it? So it looks at links and quotes and who you link to and how reputable they are, etc. Um, a little like PageRank sort of in reverse, if you know Google PageRank's algorithm. Um, the opinionated element, we analyze um, the text of the article and we run a number of algorithms in the natural language, proce- uh, natural language processing field which look at things like how subjective and opinionated the text is, and we score it. Um, We look at then author expertise by uh, classifying every article we've ever rated, and we've now rated over 10 million articles by 50,000 journalists. Um, We group all articles into one of a thousand topics, and we look at does this journalist write on the same topic over and over, or maybe a couple of topics, and how do their previous articles rate for sources and opinionatedness? And basically, you start to build up an expertise score saying, wow, this person writes on Syria all the time. And every time they do, it's very well researched. It's not very opinionated. Maybe they know something about Syria. So then their rating goes up. So you get an expert rating. And then similarly, there's uh, a reputation rating for the site, which is just sort of an average grade of all the articles we've ever written for them or rated for them. Um, So this algorithm runs very quickly and can rate an article in just a second or so. We run this 10,000 times every day on every article we can find across hundreds of outlets. And then we group articles into topics and say, okay, these are all related to the same topic. We find the best, uh, highest graded one. And then we always present multiple viewpoints and multiple perspectives for every topic. Because as good as our algorithm is, it actually 
is not perfect. There are a couple of really important things to understand. Our system actually doesn't really know what a fact is. It doesn't know what facts are true or false. It doesn't know what facts are omitted. Those are really difficult things for a computer to do. That's much better for a human to do. And so what we do is we think of our rating system and our curation as a complement to human judgment. If you were trying to understand a story, like let's say right now, one of the biggest topics in the U.S. is the uh, infrastructure bill, massive trillion dollar bill. There are a hundred stories that come out every day. You wouldn't know where to start. What we're doing is we're going to rate all these articles and we're going to present to you the most informative, factual, unopinionated story. Then we're going to present two more, typically something from a different political point of view to account for framing bias and omission bias. If they, if you know, the lead article left out some facts, the second one should have picked it up, hopefully. And then some sort of a long read, really in-depth explainer. When given those three articles, now consumers are saying, okay, this is great. I've got a bunch of different angles and framings. Few really good authors have written about this. Collectively, I've got all the facts I need. Now I can reach my own conclusions. And so that's how we use our um, our rating system to be a complement to human judgment. We want people to arrive at their own conclusions, but we want to make it easy for them because it's just overwhelming otherwise. We want to give them really good articles, a bunch of the important facts. Oftentimes we summarize and really curate it down because we know people are pressed for time. And then we leave them to get that last 10% of the weight. Yeah, that's great. It's uh, really interesting to think of it as um, needing both the human element and the AI element. I think that sometimes we think of AI solutions as making decisions for us when uh, the truth is they're just there to help us along and sift through all the information. That's exactly it. In fact, I think... Um, there's a level of fear about AI that maybe it, it feels a little stretched, at least with the capabilities we have today. Maybe in, in you know a decade or two, it won't be. But right now, at least what we see is that um, with the proliferation of information in almost every sphere of our lives, everywhere you go, there's just too much. It's, it's overwhelming. Then technology is really good at filtering, parsing, curating, summarizing, all of these things. But it will, I hope the designers of these algorithms keep in mind that most of their algorithms cannot be perfect and should not try to go all the way to the finish line where human judgment is actually really critical. But it's a really nice thing to have as a compliment. If, for example, we didn't have it, not only is there the filtering element, but humans are very prone to falling for confirmation bias. If we think a certain story, you know, we know that so-and-so leader is bad or good, we see stories that reflect that view, we tend to agree with it. And when you see stories we disagree with, we're like, oh, come on, that journalist is so untrustworthy. But having this rating system that's consistent all the time, it's the same, it at least gives you a guide saying, well, the factual thing is a pretty good article, and it's it's not what I would have thought, but maybe I ought to give it a second look. Or conversely, the factual thing this article isn't very good. Are they just trying to make me excited or angry? Uh, maybe this is a little too good to be true. That's what I think you want technology to play. It's kind of that double check for you. It's not the final word. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that last line you said. It's a double check, not the final word. It's great. Uh, So the last thing I want to ask you about is the idea of paywalls 
every day I feel I click on an article and a box pops up and says, no, you can't read this unless you subscribe, like create an annual subscription with us. Um, do you think that gating content like this causes people to seek out free sources and therefore maybe uh, less reliable sources of information? I'm especially interested uh, to hear your opinions on this because the factual itself is actually a, a paid subscription. So yeah, I, I, I wonder when you're linking out to also uh, outlets that have paid subscriptions, how, how does that work? Yeah. Um, so a couple of questions. We'll talk about first paywalls and then secondly, how the factuals own subscription melds with paywalls. Um, I think paywalls are fine, but are often poorly executed. And what I mean by this is um, there's a really great stat that I once uh, heard from the publisher of the New York Times, where he said, you know, we've got more than 100 million people that visit the Times every month. At this point, probably 150 million. Um, and guess what fraction actually see the paywall ever? Uh, and the answer was about 5% or maybe less. The vast, vast majority of people that go to the Times never see the paywall. And what it was a reflection of for me was that there's really two classes of consumers for most news sites. There's your avid, loyal, I love you, I read you all the time folks. And then there's the people like, yeah, I kind of read you once in a while. It's not a big deal. I'll probably read this or that. So I don't know that the paywall drives that many people away per se. Um, I think we might all, the, the people who are frustrated by paywalls and multiple paywalls, we're actually in kind of a narrow segment of the population. The vast majority probably just never see it or some fraction see it and love it anyways and, and they're all in. So uh, I don't think it affects as many people. I do think that for the, that segment that it does affect, yes, of course, we go and look at the free sources or things like that because all of us want to save money. But um, what I think most news organizations will get around to, and, and a few are, the Times is not bad actually, the Journal is also pretty good, is realizing that it's not about the content alone. It's the news experience. There's so much content in the world. If all you did was gate your content and say, no, you got to pay, people are like, oh, there's kind of something else that's close enough. But if you start to have a real experience in the news, which is what we're doing at The Factual, which is that you want great content, you also want a great community. People like to talk about the news, and there's no good place to talk about it. And we're building this community there, amazing conversations every day, respectful, thoughtful, um, critically, you know, different people disagree with each other, but all the social media sort of um, signals of popularity are taken out. And it's really much more about quality. And so we're getting this really great discussion going. And then the overall experience, sort of friction-free, not ads all over the place, just make it pleasant. Uh, when you start to build a news experience that's great, then I think you'll start to pull more people in versus if all you say is, you just have to pay to read this one article. And most people are like, it's not that critical for me unless it's related to my profession. So that's sort of where I think paywalls are. And so for us, as I said, we're really about the news experience. The paywall issue is a small portion of the problem. Most of our readers, if you, if you see our curation, because our rating system doesn't rank on popularity, you don't see the same sources all the time. You will not see the New York Times or CNN or Fox News or what have you all the time. They're there. Sometimes they rate well, but a lot of times they're just middle of the pack and there's other sources that are really, really good, very specialist sort of sources. One of the beauties of the internet 
is that you've had this proliferation of news sources and amazing, diverse, rich viewpoints come to the front, which before you would never have seen. So yes, it's annoying that there's a lot of news sources, but it's great that you're seeing a lot of different angles at it and really challenging the status quo. Um, so anyways, we don't always show those gated sources. We oftentimes show a lot of other sources. So our readers don't tend to hit paywalls as much as they might expect. It's just not there. But in the future, we do see that more and more content will go there. And so what we will start to do is to license those articles, um, you know, typically one or two a day from each outlet. And that's a fairly common paradigm for most of these outlets. They syndicate articles all the time, some of their best work to other sources to bring traffic. We think that's great. We want to showcase the best work of hundreds of outlets all the time and drive people back to those sites. And if we're paying a small licensing fee for it, when we have a large enough user base, it's going to be economically fine. But ultimately, we want to showcase great journalism. And I think that's the way we do it. You know, I really like this idea of licensing articles in the future uh, so that you can include them and give a more full picture. Uh, and also the idea that your AI um, algorithm is able to give a more fulsome picture of the internet in general and what's happening uh, and being said from multiple different viewpoints. That, in theory, can only be good. Very much. I think... Uh... If you think back to one of the most famous journalism failures in the last 20 years, most people would point to the invasion of Iraq and most news outlets not sufficiently questioning the evidence for um, Saddam Hussein having weapons of mass destruction. We sort of all just accepted it. Intelligence said it, okay, must be good. Bunch of newspapers, big headlines, off we go. It turned out not to be true. And I think... Um, that's where we want journalism, right? We want them questioning all these sources. We want them to question the government. We want them to question experts. That's what they're really good at. And they didn't really do a great job back then. But in today's day and age, I don't think that would ever fly. There's so many people out there, the great reporters that would question, question, and have a forum to get their viewpoints out there, that the public would be far less ready to jump, I think, and say, oh, yeah, that's so obviously the issue. We should go and take X measure. Um, it's harder sometimes to reach a conclusion that everyone's happy with and to get consensus. So that, of course, is harder. That's why we have a fracturous democracy and there's a lot of arguments. But I hope that the net outcome is that more often than not, we, we make the right decisions as a society, move forward, a little stumbling but not taking really bad steps that are that are harmful without sufficient analysis and critical thinking. All goes back to critical thinking. It really does. I think at the end of the day, if you um, a democracy only works if the populace is really well informed and is willing to think for themselves and challenge uh, views and ask good questions. That makes us elect better leaders. It makes us make better decisions. Better. It's, it's all around goodness. So really, at the end of it, there's sort of a media literacy element that the factual is really about. We hope that our rating system and the way that it transparently always evaluates sources, tone, authors, and, and, sources, and, and site reputation, it just becomes a rubric that people can use all the time, even when the factual is not present. You could pick up a newspaper in some foreign country and be like, eh, what is this? How does it lean? And Who's this journalist and where are the source? I don't see a lot of sources, not a lot of quotes here. It feels rather like they should get into that habit 
And then that's, that's nirvana, right? You should be a really good news consumer without even the tools. And then, boy, if we imagine if the entire populace was like that, we would be so much further along. So really, at, at, at the end of it, I hope that our approach, and, and there are many organizations like us that are doing good work, that we help educate um, the next generation of consumers, especially to be better consumers of news. And then, yeah, hopefully, you know, over 20, 30 years, we get a populace that's very news savvy, very, very intelligent. Some great hope for the future. Thanks, Arjun, for joining and, uh, and explaining all this to us. It's been great to have you. Thank you so much, Meg. It was lovely to have you. Uh, lovely to be on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or tell a friend about it. It makes a big difference. Uncharted Warriors in the World is produced and hosted by me, Meg Vanderwood. Carlos Saavedra is our editor. Both Carlos and I are alumni and staff at the University of Waterloo.